when it shifted for me was waking up in ICU. Yeah. So I, it had been, by the time I'm waking up and starting to kind of have these flashes of memory in ICU, it had been about 24 hours. Mm. I was numb from the waist down. Um, I'd taken so many pills that I, I couldn't feel my legs. I was hooked up to all kind of machines, as you can imagine. And my wife's there. My best friend is there. And they're trying to piece together what's happened. My wife's totally in denial going, you know, did you just get your meds mixed up? Mm. Um, and I'm having to tell her, no, I, I meant to die. I don't mm. want to be here. Um, all of that happens. Eventually, the next day, they leave to go home because my wife has a, a one-year-old birthday party to throw. Mm. And... I'm there by myself in this cold ICU room. Why does the hospital have to be so cold? I'm there in this cold, cold ICU room. It's dark. I'm by myself for the first time. And I feel this warm hand on my chest as real as if you were right here with your hand on my chest right now. Mm. And I hear this inaudible voice whisper. Deconstructed these walls and I found a That's how we're supposed to start this, right? Mike Coolen here. Um, I'm a new voice that you may have not heard before, but if you follow the podcast on Facebook at all, you've probably read something that I've either written or posted at some point. Over the past couple of years, I've been a supporter of the What If Project on Patreon because I really believe in the work that Glenn's doing here, and I've actually seen some of the good that it can do with people. A while back, Glenn asked a few of us about what our favorite episode was and if we wanted to maybe record an intro. Well, so here I am. Over the past few years, Glenn's brought us conversations with some of the greatest minds, I would say, in progressive Christianity, deconstruction, and beyond. And to choose my favorite out of this seemed almost impossible, with the Brian Zons of the world, N.T. Wright, D.B.H., so many to name, it's just impossible. That was all until I remembered an episode that aired last July with my friend Steve Austin. There was something about this conversation that was just so Glenn, so Steve. It was so relaxed. Um, allow me a moment to go kind of full narcissist here because I am in fact the Mike that is mentioned a couple of times in this episode. First time I met Steve, I went to a speaking engagement of his and I wore a What If Project rainbow no hate love wins hoodie and that got a conversation started because Glenn, or steve had never heard of the what if project 
we got the ball rolling, I connected the two, and that kind of culminated in the podcast that you're about to hear. Unfortunately, this past spring, Steve tragically died by suicide. His work, his interviews, are a way that his work can live on. To be honest, I've avoided listening to this for a long time. Tonight, while cooking dinner, I thought, you know what, I'm going to take the time. I'm going to tune in again. There are moments, like now, that I got choked up. As I remembered my friend. Many of us have home movies, old audio recordings, where we can listen to loved ones, but to be able to hear them in this high quality, like somebody's in the same room with you, it's, it's tough. What surprised me, though, when I listened to this, is how much I was smiling, how much I was laughing. Because I remembered the humor and the wit of my friend. This past week, whenever this airs, on September 21st, Steve's final book, called Hiding in the Pews, has been released. And I think it's important work that you need to read. More than anything, Steve has taught me that if you're struggling, reach out. Reach out to whoever you can. Whoever makes you feel safe. There's going to be some links in the show notes to both his new book and the GoFundMe that's still running to support his wife, Lindsay, and his two kids. This got way more emotional than I thought it was going to. But Glenn, let's roll the tape. Let's reintroduce everybody that listens to the What If Project to not Stone Cold Steve Austin, not the million dollar man Steve Austin, but to the real Steve Austin. Husband, father, pastor, life coach and a dear friend does God have a face does he have a body or even a name if he does does he know that I'm
everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Uh, today we are joined by author, coach, ex-pastor, uh, Steve Austin. So Steve, welcome to the podcast, my friend. It's good to finally catch up with you. Oh my goodness. It's so great to be here. Thank you for having me. Oh, you're welcome. So I first heard about you from a listener of the podcast who said that you spoke at his church, I believe, and uh, yeah. I needed to reach out to you and bring you on the podcast. And uh, he kept going at me saying, you have to talk to this guy. You have to talk to this guy. And so here you are, finally. It was getting <laughs> really expensive. So I'm glad that you finally <laughs> took the bait. <laughs> shout um, out to Mike. <laughs> shout out to Mike, Mr. Mike. Yeah. Uh, so I read your book too at his recommendation, uh, Catching Your Breath, which uh, for our listeners is subtitled The Sacred Journey from Chaos to Calm. And it really resonated with me and uh, my own journey. So I wanted to start by thanking you uh, for your work. I mean, I follow you online. Uh, you Thank put you. out really rich content uh, every day. And I look, you're one of the people I look forward to seeing like, what's Steve going to post today, especially in the midst of all of the COVID-19 posts that are out there and all the, the stuff going <laughs> on. You're always a a flurry of hope <laughs> that comes up oh, to my Facebook feed. Flurry so, of you. hope. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> well, thanks. <laughs> I'll take that. <laughs> so to kind of kick off the conversation, uh, I was wondering if you could maybe just start by telling us your, some of your story. You know, who are you? Uh, what has chaos to calm look like for you? Maybe some of the highlights of your, of your journey. Sure. Yeah. Thanks again. So, boy, I grew up evangelical. Um, don't hold it against me, but I, you know, I say that tongue in cheek, they're still my people. Hmm. Um, I get them. (laughs) I I don't agree with them, but I get them. And, uh, so grew up evangelical, grew up, uh, very small town, rural Alabama and church was, it was a part of our life. It was our life because I think well, first, fear-based theology kept our asses in the pews, mm. but also small-town church really does this amazing job of providing immediate community. Mm. It provides this immediate friend group, this immediate like mentor opportunity, if that's what you want. Yep. It provides immediate opportunities to volunteer. You walk in the door, and they provide all these things immediately. Here's your whole new everything. <laughs> yeah. and it's like a brochure of here's all the relationships you can have. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for better or worse. Yes. And so from my experience, at least, in small town America, the church not only holds the corner market on religion, but it also holds the corner market on social life. So I grew up there. We were in church every time the doors were open. My dad was sort of the every Sunday solo singer, like he was that guy. Hmm. Um, Mom was always involved in volunteering. I, I did my God, vacation Bible school, which turned into, you know, youth group and youth leadership and eventually Bible college and church was, I was a church rat. That's what I told Mm. people. I I grew up there. I lived there. We were, it was everything for us. But then we have to back up. When I was just a preschooler, I was sexually abused by the neighbor boy who lived across the street. Mm. So I was somewhere between three and four. He was about 17 Mm. and Again, small town Alabama where everybody knows everybody and what we don't know about you will make up. And so, and then you add on top of that, 
very young, immature parents who were trying to do their best with what they had, but they didn't have a whole lot. Mm -hmm. And so because of all of that, they thought the best thing to do would be to threaten this kid within an inch of his life. Uh, they happened to know that his dad was a raging alcoholic and they feared for this teenager's safety. And they naively thought this little three or four year old little boy is never going to remember this again. It happened one time. He's never going to remember. Let's not, let's not go to all this craziness and get the police involved and have to go to court and all this. This is a baby. Let's not traumatize him further. Now, those are wrong decisions. Let's be yeah. real clear. That is not the right choice. Yeah. Um, and, and we've had to work through a lot of that. Mm-hmm. However, it's the choice that was made. And so the abuse was swept under the rug. You know, we prayed for Jesus to fix it, for the blood of Jesus to cover it, because we were going to the Baptist church, but we were very much Pentecostal charismatic. <laughs> and so, you know, we pled the blood of Jesus, and then we moved on. We didn't talk about it again. And that's where shame is introduced into my story at a very early age, because I told the story the first time there in the bathtub. I'm still little enough that mom's giving me a bath at night and she sees these red marks and starts asking questions. And that's the only time I ever told my story without shame. And so, so that's, that's kind of the beginning. Mm -hmm. Then when I was about nine, uh, my dad got a new job. We moved to the other side of the County. We got involved in in an assemblies of God church. (laughs) I like the uh, way you really, said that. Yeah. Yes, they uh, they really put the ass in assembly. But anyway, yes. the the AG Church. Sorry, the AG Church that is might be the title of this episode. No, yes, <laughs> is they're basically Southern Baptist plus the Holy Ghost. Mm. So here's what I need to know: Have you ever talked with someone or talked on this show about the difference between the Holy Spirit and the Holy Ghost? Uh, no. So why don't you, why don't you give us a lesson? <laughs> I'm glad you asked. So Take us I, in. <laughs> for my extensive into this. research, <laughs> the very big difference in the Holy Spirit and the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit, I didn't know about until I was in my late 20s, early 30s. The Holy Spirit is is the comfort that Jesus talks about sending after he ascends, right? Mm, The Holy Spirit is wisdom and love and guidance and God with us, right? That's the Holy Spirit. Mm. So but like I grew spirit, up with, like this monk and spirit. Yes. 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 Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. What I grew up with was the Holy ghost and the Holy ghost is like, it's like you're like your crazy uncle Tommy and you're like, he's just one tick off of center right. yes. and very unpredictable. He's probably always a couple beers in at Thanksgiving. Right. Like that's the Holy ghost wild and unpredictable. Make your grandma look like a chicken at the altar. People yeah. are running and shouting and like, Barking that's the, and yes, yes. yes. <laughs> yep. So that's, that's the version of God that I grew up with. Mm. <laughs> So, uh, yeah. So anyway, that was completely unnecessary. We just no, we have like to talk it. about the difference in those two. Maybe okay, that, we'll have to do like a whole episode about that. Oh man. I'd love to know other people's experience with the Holy ghost. Cause you'll you get go. some stories. My oh, friend. That's for sure. I have some <laughs> of my own. <laughs> yeah. 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 Yep. So, um, yeah. So from there it was a couple of years of Bible college and, and then about 10 years of, of ministry, a youth mm. pastor and a worship leader, 
work, all the while sweeping my pain under the rug, sweeping mm. the trauma from this abuse under the rug, the anxiety, the depression, the PTSD, because in the world I grew up in, you could be a Christian or you could be crazy. Mm. And that's a terrible word we shouldn't use, but I'm using it to make a point here. You could yeah. be one or the other. You couldn't yeah. be both. There was no integration of mental health and spiritual health. Mm. And so you learned very quickly, keep your mouth shut, keep your head down, fly under the radar, learn when to stand, sit, kneel, say amen. Mm. And that's it. But don't embarrass your family. Don't embarrass your pastor. Um, just, you know, keep it together. Yeah. yeah. So that's kind of the, the world that I grew up in, which leads to the age of 29. I'd been married five years. Lindsay and I had a, a little boy that would turn a year old the next day. Mm. I've been serving as a youth pastor and or worship pastor for about 10 years, and I just couldn't handle the pressure anymore. Mm. The pressure of performance-based Christianity. Um, you mean there's says, pressure when you're a pastor? No. Man alive, are you <laughs> kidding? Yeah, yeah, add that on top of it. I'd, I'd been living, you know, 20-something years of just typical pressure of being this performance-based Christian. Sure, sure. Yeah, then you add the pastoral role on top of it. I would, So I would put my prescription bottles in my lunch box. Mm. I would take my lunchbox into the staff bathroom at the church, lock the door, go in the stall, lock the stall, and take my meds in the stall in the bathroom mm. because I was scared to death for anybody to know that the youth pastor is having to take meds for anti-anxiety. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so much shame. Yeah. And it, so long story short, I attempted suicide at the age of 29 because I just believed that I was a burden on my wife. She was the only one that knew of all these struggles mm. and that it would be better for her at 27, young, smart, beautiful, capable, independent, could do anything. She could start over. She could find a, a normal husband. Mm. This little baby boy that turned a year old the next day, he would never remember me. He could have a, a new dad, a normal dad. He could, he could start over. And so, so when people talk about suicide, they talk about how it's the most selfish thing you can do. Mm but it doesn't feel that way in the moment. In the moment, it feels like the most selfless thing that you can do. And that's sort of the, that was the tipping point for me. When I got to that point and said, I'm actually doing you a favor, then I could, I could justify ending my life. Mm. So here we are almost eight years later after spending three days in ICU, a week on the psych ward, countless hours of, therapy and marriage counseling years later. Um, and I can tell you that I don't think it was the anxiety that nearly killed me. I don't think it was the depression that nearly killed me. I don't think it was the PTSD that nearly killed me. I think it was the shame of all those things. Mm. I think shame was the killer. Mm. Yeah. And you go read the Bible, look at Adam and Eve. I think it's not sin that's introduced into the garden. It's shame. That's right. Shame is, that's where shame is introduced. It's right there in the garden. Yeah. And I think what you said about, you know, the, the church is that, you know, it's been my experience too, that the church doesn't always know how to handle things like that. And I think yeah. for me, like growing up, it was like, if you have a problem, you're the problem. It's because oh, you're, you're not going to church enough. You're not reading your Bible enough. Join another Bible study. 
Yep. Now it's download another devotional on your phone. You know, it's pray more. It's, you know, have an accountability partner. Like if, if you're not okay, it's because you're not doing something right. You're not hitting the right button on the vending machine. Absolutely. To get the, the thing out that you want. And so as you're telling your story, I'm wondering like when, like that kind of thinking is obviously like ingrained in you, I think when you're young, right? Sure. And so yeah. it becomes normal. Like when in your mind did it become abnormal? Like when in your mind were you like, wait a minute, like this, mm. this isn't something that's right. Like, did it happen after the suicide attempt? Was it sometime before that? Like, when did that become a problem in your mind? Boy, there were glimmers of hope when I was in Bible college, my mm. second year of Bible college specifically. Um, I got my hands on what at the time was the most heretical thing I'd ever read. And it was the Ragamuffin Gospel by Brandon oh, Manning. Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah, that was the start for me. Yeah. Right yep. Now I look at that and go, <laughs> yeah, like, boy, like that, that, that was guy. nothing. <laughs> yeah, so conservative. <laughs> so that was the beginning for me, getting my hands on that and going, no, surely not. Surely there's not a God who could actually like me. Yeah. No, 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 no. Yeah. Um, then a few years after that, I got my hands on the shack. Yeah. And boy, wow. By the way, uh, after becoming friends with Paul, mm -hmm. he's a pretty conservative guy too. Yeah. <laughs> As it goes, the like Paul's a Trinitarian. He yeah. is theologically pretty stinking conservative. He just happened to make God a black woman in his book. <laughs> yeah, I talked to him on the podcast once and I asked him something and he didn't give me the answer I was expecting. And I was like, oh, yeah. maybe I'm not going to go down that trail. I'm just going to halt no, he, and pivot mm, to another He's <laughs> not, not very liberal at all theologically. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but oh, what a great guy. Anyway. Have you seen the movie, um, by the way? Love it. Yeah, oh, yeah, love it. Read the book, I think, eight times. I've seen the movie twice. So good. Um, yeah. I don't know what your question was. <laughs> oh, we were talking. <laughs> we were talking about uh, when. When did shame become a problem in your? In oh your mind? yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it started with those books. Um, yep. Going, man. Maybe there's a better version of God out there. But quickly, I would have to just push that away, burn the book, like <laughs> give it away. Want to get this out of the house? I can't be caught reading this stuff. Hide it in the bathroom stall in the church. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so. So there were glimmers of hope back then when it mm. shifted for me was waking up in ICU. So I, it had been, by the time I'm waking up and starting to kind of have these flashes of memory in ICU, it had been about 24 hours. I was numb from the waist down. Um, I'd taken so many pills that I, I couldn't feel my legs. I was hooked up to all kind of machines, as you can imagine. And my wife's there. My best friend is there. And they're trying to piece together what's happened. My wife's totally in denial going, you know, did you just get your meds mixed up? Mm. Um, and I'm having to tell her, no, I, I meant to die. I don't mm. want to be here. Um, all of that happens. Eventually the next day they leave to go home because my wife has a, a one-year-old birthday party to throw. Mm. And, I'm there by myself in this cold ICU room. Why does the hospital have to be so cold? I'm there in this cold, cold ICU room. It's dark. I'm by myself for the first time. And I feel this warm hand on my chest as real as if you were right here with your hand on my chest right now. Mm. 
And I hear this inaudible voice whisper, I'm not finished with you yet. And I just started crying because whatever you believe theologically in that moment doesn't matter. I had this experience with divine love that refused to give up. Mm. Like God actually became a very present help in time of need in that moment. Mm. And that flipped the switch for me to say, I was done with me. I was completely done. I hated myself. And this voice had to be God because I was done. I had cashed it all in. This was not a cry for attention. I was not looking for help. I was done. I fully intended to die. And yet Mm. you show up saying, there's more to my story. Mm. You show up saying, hang on, hang on, hang on. Don't, don't go just, don't go just yet. Just hold on. Let me show you how much better this can be. And I got home a week plus later and Lindsay and I are sitting on the couch day one after being released from the psych ward. And that time is real funky and weird and you don't know what to say and you don't know what to do. And it's just this really weird space. And I'll never forget we're sitting there and she said, I'm not leaving. Hmm. And I started to, to wail, to weep, to sob uncontrollably because I absolutely believed she was going to leave. Mm. Her family was all for her leaving. Bring that baby to Florida. Get out of there. He's a liar. He's lost it. He's had a breakdown. Wow. You don't have to stay. You have every excuse to leave. Mm. And she's sitting there and she said, I'm, I'm not leaving. If you will tell the truth, if you will ask for help, if you will go to therapy, if you will take your meds, if you will tell me when you're not okay, I'm not leaving because I believe in the truly good man that I married. And this is the line that always gets me. I don't think that the worst day of your life gets to define the rest of your life unless you let it. Amen. So she became the tangible grace of God to me in that moment and in every moment since to say, whatever you think about yourself, whatever horrible things you've said, whatever those tapes are that play over and over, whatever those nightmares are that wake you up sweaty in the middle of the night, whatever that is that tells you that you are not good enough, all it takes to defeat that shame, to begin to defeat that shame is to speak it out loud. Yeah. That's it. Just to ask for help, just to say, I'm not okay. Hmm. And if you surround yourself with trusted people who have your back, who have your best interest at heart, who love you enough to tell you the uncomfortable truth at times and who will never leave you. If you have those people around you and you're willing to get professional help, Hmm. everything can change. Everything can get better. Yeah. It's one of the things I discovered. I took a, a class in school called uh, Soul Care. Mm, and, uh, yeah. I know you're doing like a little soul care thing <laughs> right am. now. Yeah. And uh, it actually made me think of this, but as you're telling the story, um, I took it was a, a week long, like intensive class. So it was like every day from eight to five. Okay. And um, then I, it impacted me so much. I was like, I got to go take it again. So this was at a doctoral level. So then I took it at the master's level, which was a little bit of a longer class, but there was, it was just so much content in it that I, uh, I was trying to digest. But one of the things that 
kind of came up in the class is that, you know, shame tells us that we need to keep hiding this thing, Mm. but shame, that thing loses its power when we do the opposite of what shame tells us to do. And we bring it out into the open into the light and we share it with somebody all of a sudden, you know, it's like, you're not trying to hide anything anymore. And then the shame just isn't there. Like it, it just disarms the shame in such a powerful way. And I think that that's, I think that's something that the church really could teach more. And I think a lot of people would be so much more free if they realize that. Yep. You yeah. nailed it, my friend. Absolutely. Yeah. And what a gift in your wife to have somebody who <laughs> says like, I'm, I'm here, like I'm nailing myself into the ground. <laughs> like, you know, yeah. I'm not going And you know what? She was this beautiful balance of truth and grace. She did say, I'm not going anywhere. I'm here. I'm by your side. If Mm -hmm. you will get help, you will tell the truth. You you know, all the, here's the stipulations. She made a boundary. She did. Yeah. This is, this is where I'm drawing the line. And if you will do these things, I'm never going to turn my back on you. Yeah. Which is something else. I mean, again, growing up in the church that I don't know about you, but wasn't really modeled very well for me. Like you said earlier, it was an if that like, if it was either, either, or it was never, there was never like a mix. There was never truth and grace. It was truth or no, grace. It was, no, absolutely. It wasn't, it wasn't a line. It was a wall. And yeah. you know, it's either you're in or you're out, that kind of thing. So yep. I think that that's such a cool thing that even though you had that upbringing that your wife was able to model that part of, of God for you. Yeah. I think she was able to show me, you're talking about it, truth or grace she was able to show me that grace is truth yeah sure that's where 100%. it is yeah yeah the only law is grace the only law is another chance yeah jesus models it over and over and over again for us in scripture that's right so you went from um the psych ward to where you are are now and so i'm overnight, curious i flipped a switch overnight right it's yeah just, i, I mean, took just... a magic pill a jesus <laughs> pill right. and it fixed everything that's, that's the way it works. So first of all, if yeah. you could send me some of those pills in the mail. Red or blue. That would yes. be fantastic. <laughs> uh, but I'm curious, what, what advice do you have for somebody who uh, maybe feels like they're in a state of chaos right now? Like maybe they're struggling with shame. Maybe mm. there's something from their past, something from maybe they're very, you're very present for them, but they're, they're carrying this thing around. They feel like their life is out of whack. Maybe it's just the COVID-19 stuff. Maybe it's a family mm. situation. Maybe it's a, uh, mistake that they've made, you know, they're carrying this thing around. Like, what is your advice for somebody to start taking steps out of that sense of shame? Like if you could go back um, to the, mm-hmm. the time when this, all this kind of unraveled in your life, like what, what advice would you give to that version of yourself now? Boy, oh boy. So I, can we, do we have time to do a coaching exercise? Can I take you through a real quick coaching exercise? Sure. Let's do it. Let's do it. Okay. So I just sent this out to my, to my people today, to my email friends. Okay. Um, and I, it's, it's just a sphere of influence. So if you have a paper or you want to pause this podcast and go get paper and pen and come back, unless you're driving and I want you getting paper and pen right now, <laughs> but if you get paper and pen and draw the biggest circle you can draw inside that sheet of paper okay. and then inside that circle, draw another circle kind of toward the top of it, maybe make the edges touch and draw a smaller circle about a fourth of the size of that larger circle. Mm. On the outside of the two circles, so in that, in that 
space where, where you're outside the circle and there's all that extra space out there. I want you to write everything else. Hmm. Inside the smaller circle, I want you to write within my control. And inside the larger circle, I want you to write, I can influence. So this is one of my favorite exercises when I'm feeling overwhelmed mm. or stressed or anxious. This is one of my go-tos. Okay, so you got your circles on your paper. I want you to take a few minutes and think about, kind of go through this list. You can write them down if you want to on the back of this paper or just make a mental note of the things that are contributing to your anxiety, to your worries, to that feeling of overwhelm. Maybe it's some of those things you mentioned. Maybe it's running out of food. Maybe it's what's going to happen. This COVID-19 thing is all uncertain and what's tomorrow going to look like. The mm. news seems to change hour by hour. Mm. Um, maybe it's that dentist appointment that I, I canceled and I can't yet reschedule yeah. or I'm worried about my grandma or I'm feeling really tired or, oh my gosh, how do I balance work and home when I'm working from home and, ah, or lack of work mm. or feelings of guilt for not doing more. Like there's all these things that we might be feeling worried about specifically right now in this time of crisis. Mm. So I want you to write each one of those worry items inside this sphere of influence and then decide there's four questions you have to ask yourself. The first one is, do I have complete control over the worry? If this thing I'm worrying about, I have complete control over, then I should write it in that little circle that says within my control. Hmm. Do I have partial control over this worry? If I don't have complete control, but I have partial control, then I can write it in the larger circle that I can influence hmm. circle. If it is completely outside my control, completely outside my influence, then you have to write it outside those two circles in that wide open space that says everything else. Mm. And then from there, you move on to your next worry. So you go through that process with everything that's on your list. These are all the things that are draining me right now. Mm. Go through those questions, those three, and decide where they go. Mm. Once you've written them all out in sort of that relevant, appropriate space, then look at it. So for the things that you have control over, you have to identify an action. Even if it's a really tiny action, identify an action for each worry. Mm. Um, it's really helpful if you, do, if you do one action today or maybe one action right now mm. and it will make you feel better right now. Even if it's just a percent, you're going to feel better. Yeah. Um, for the items that you put in that larger circle where you have influence or partial control over them, then write down the steps that you're going to take and exactly when you're going to do them, whether that's today or in the next few days. Mm. And then the final step is to let go of everything else. Mm. All that stuff in the everything else field, you got to let go of it because you don't have control over it. My friend Sue, and I, I talk about this in Catching Your Breath, my friend Sue says, the merry-go-round has a motor. Mm. All you have to do is get on and ride. Yeah. So you have to give yourself permission to take the cross off your back or the cape, whatever it is for you, mm -hmm. come down off that thing and not be the savior of the whole world. You can't change everything today. You can't heal all the sick people today. You can't make all the depressed people feel better today. You can't. So you have to let go of all those things. And then the good news is now you get to choose 
how you're going to spend your energy. Mm. You get to choose to focus on what is within your control, what is within your influence, because everything else that you're focusing on is a total waste of energy. And it's going to keep you from showing up fully in the other areas of your life where you are desperately needed. Mm. Yeah. So that's my little tip. Yeah. I think it's about being aware of what's going on in your mind. Like think about Mm. what you're thinking Mm. about, right? Because so often we just let stuff fly into our minds. We don't think twice about it. But in reality, if we stop, like you just described long enough to put different things in categories, we'll see that sometimes the things that are overwhelming us the most are the things that are most out of our control. And if we would just focus on those things that we can influence, that we can make a difference with, um, I think it alleviates a lot of the, the pressure. I've seen that in my own life anyway. Yeah. My friend Ashley, um, Ashley Davis is a therapist in Birmingham and she says, you are only responsible for the things you can touch. Yeah. And that gives us so much more permission to be human. You're not a machine. You're not some algorithm. You can't just keep going, especially when crisis is happening. We've got to have more downtime, more stillness. We've got to be able to take care of ourselves or we're going to burn out way quicker than than normal in yeah. normal time, yeah. <laughs> whatever normal time is. <laughs> right. So one of the things you talk about in the book that I wanted to ask you about is kind of the ways in which um, you connect with God and how that's changed for you. Because you have a section in the book where you talk about how um, as you've kind of progressed or evolved in your your faith and things have deconstructed, for lack of a better word, like that the way you connect with God, the way you view God, like that's changed. So I'm wondering like, what is it about how you connect with God that's changed and why was there a need for a change? And I asked that because we have a lot of people that listen to the, the podcast who are kind of in that phase of rethinking their faith. And they're asking like, well, how do I, how do I connect with God if I don't really believe the same things about God that I used to believe? Like, do I still need to approach him in the same way? Like, is there, you know, is there a different way that I can go about having a deeper connection with God? So like, what, what are your thoughts about that? Oh man, this is one of my favorite conversations in the whole world. Oh, it's one of my favorite <laughs> things to coach around. So you'll have mm. to shut me up, Steve. Like, hey, we've been talking two hours, Steve. Stop. <laughs> it's one breaks. of my favorite things in the whole world. <laughs> yeah, I gotta have water. Um, <laughs> so what you believe about God is, if not the most important thing in your whole life, it's at least the second most important thing. Yeah. And the only way it's the second most important thing is if what you believe about yourself is number one. Mm. So those two things flip flop for me often because they are so intertwined. Mm. What, here, okay, so in a nutshell, what you believe about God matters because it directly impacts what you believe about yourself. Yeah. If I believe that God is this fear mongering, heavenly evil Santa Claus who's making his list and checking it twice and going to find out who's going to be sent to hell forever. Mm. Wait, that, that, that went really crazy. (laughs) But if, if that's who God is and, and I'm worthless without him, Mm. I'm broken. I'm, I mean, I'm just a piece of crash without him, if I'm just trash, if I'm just a pile of crap, then why does my life matter? Yeah. Right? Like, mm-hmm. of course. We, so I'm thinking specifically about our LGBTQ 
brothers and sisters. Mm. If, if we've been told, if they've been told that they're not good enough because of the way they were made, because yeah. of how they were born, if, if you're not good enough because of your sexuality, and, and that's what I infer from God, if that's what I'm getting from God's mouthpiece, the church, mm then why wouldn't I infer that my life is worthless, that God must hate me? I might as well hate myself. I might as well just die. Mm. So let's go look at the suicide numbers for that specific community. I didn't plan on going here, but I guess we're <laughs> going to go here now. Go look at the suicide numbers for that specific community. Well, no wonder they're through the roof yeah. compared to other marginalized populations because we've told them you have no place here. You're not welcome here. So, oh my gosh, what you believe about God matters so much. And as important, what you don't believe about God matters. So, I believe in this angry, egotistical, emotionally unstable, abusive, fear-mongering God for years. And I was convinced that if I wasn't a good little boy, that my name was going to go on the naughty list, which is the yeah. opposite of the Lamb's Book of Life, for those of you who don't know. <laughs> yeah. Right? And yep. so growing up with that fear-based God left me in a constant state of shame. I believe yeah. that every time I screwed up, whatever that was, right, there's all these expectations that you're never going to live up to. And so every time you don't live up to these unrealistic expectations of church people, yeah. you're a failure and God's going to abandon you. Yeah. Well, abandonment and shame are kissing cousins. They walk mm. hand in hand everywhere they go. So, so there are all these implications. If I can't live up to those unrealistic expectations, I'm worthless. Maybe I should die. Also, mm. if I can never live up to those unrealistic expectations of God, then no one else can ever live up to my unrealistic expectations of them. That's right. So that's who I was before deconstruction. I was this judgy, critical like, oh my gosh, I was the worst. Mm. And in that brand of Christianity, we focus on outward behavior and that's it. And it's to the yeah. detriment of genuine faith. Yeah. So yeah, it's really important to sit down, make a list. Here's what I believe about God. Here's what I don't believe about God. Yeah. And there's actually, I'll send you a link to a blog. I wrote about this, I don't know, beginning of the month. I'll send you a link um, if you want to include it in the show notes or yeah, whatever. Definitely. Um, but there's a worksheet you can download right from the blog. You don't have to sign up for an email list or anything. You just download the worksheet. Um, for a lot of my clients, when we're working through healing their image of God, a lot of times they'll go through this list and they'll still be stuck with this pretty crappy version of God. <laughs> because... <laughs> God, this, this, that which we call God, whatever that is, is it's still way out there and it's, yeah. it's like stretchy and gray and I can't quite get my hands around it. It like slips through my fingers and mm. what is that? Yeah. So the next step for me is to get people to imagine Jesus. Huh. What do you believe about Jesus? Because if you believe Jesus is God from God, light from light. Like if you believe all that, that Jesus is the best example of God we've got on earth. Mm. Well, Jesus is a little more tangible for a lot of people. Yeah. So that's my next step with clients, friends, whoever, is to do the very same thing. Put yourself in some of your favorite Bible stories with Jesus. Mm. Suspend what you know about him or have been taught about him. Mm. And imagine that you're there 
in that story. Hmm. Whether it's the woman at the well, the woman caught in adultery, Zacchaeus and the wee little man, like whatever it is, imagine that you're there and this is your first encounter with Jesus. What do you notice about his character? How does he interact with the people around him? What is he saying? What is he saying not only to this wounded person that he's interacting with, what is he saying to these nasty, god-awful, whitewashed tomb religious people that are standing around saying who knows what? And then begin to reimagine your image of God after you've gotten really clear on who Jesus is and who yeah. Jesus isn't. Yeah. So I think it's one of the most important questions you huh. can ask. I like that. I think I'm thinking back on my own story and I think that I used to view God as the, you know, the angry God who was you know, angry at my sin and he, you know, had to punish Jesus because he had to take it out on somebody like that whole thing. And that the way I approach God then is entirely different than the way I approach God now. And I think to the story, yeah. one of the stories in the Bible that, had a big impact on me was the story when Jesus calmed the storm and mm. he, he says to the disciples, you know, Oh, you have little faith. And 15 years ago, you know, I looked at that as a, as a shaming kind of phrase, Ugh, you know, you of little faith. Like, yeah. Like what Jeez. is wrong with you? You know? Yeah. And, but now when I look at it, I almost in my mind see like Jesus sitting down next to the disciples next to Peter and put his arm on his shoulder, say, Peter, I know this is hard, you know, like just talking to him, yeah. talking him through it and be like, I, I know you don't feel like you have a lot of faith right now. You know, I know that the storm is, I know, I know it's hard. I know it's rocky. I know it's windy, like kind of walking him through it as opposed to shaming him. And I think that that the way that I now connect with God is entirely different. And therefore oh, yeah. the way I approach God is very different um, as well. Yeah. And so it has this beautiful, like what I believe about God then has to inform what I believe about myself and yeah. what I believe about other people Yeah, for sure. and how I interact, interact with the world around me. Yep. So, so here's mine. What I have, what I believe about God, who God is present, dependable, love, involved, mm. patient, my healer, but not that way. Mm. What I don't believe about God, a control freak, angry, my abuser, bound by religion, cosmic Santa or beck and call girl hmm. or American. Hmm. That's the one that'll get you. So, right. <laughs> so the last question on that worksheet is how does what I believe about God inform what I believe about myself and others? Here's what, here's my response. I believe God is an ever present help in time of need, hmm. choosing to love me because of, and sometimes in spite of myself, yep. because God's very nature is love. Because God is involved in my life and dependable. I don't have to fear the egotistical, emotional, angry God of my childhood. And I don't have to perform or have all the answers all the time because God is patient with me, mm. his child. As a result of this loving view of God, I will do my best to be loving toward myself and others, living from a heart of compassion and empathy rather than judgment and fear. I will give myself and others the space to breathe and just be. It changes everything. You've heard of David Hayward, right? The Naked Pastor. Oh, yeah. What a great guy. Yep. Yeah. So he's got this. I just pulled it up on my phone because I saw it the other day, but he has this image of um, a little boy who's standing in front of his father who's sitting in a, like a reclining chair reading a magazine. And the title of the, the oh, yeah. strip is How a Child Should Not Talk to His Father. Yes. And it says, <laughs> the boy says to the father, Dear father, I'm unworthy to be called your child. 
Let me be your servant to do your will. Use me as your instrument. Take my mind, take my heart, take my body, take my life. I am nothing, so consume me with your purpose and for your glory, even though I'm the worst person in the world. And the father's looking at the kid like, what the heck? What the heck has just happened? But I think that that, when you look at something like that, you're like, I look at my daughter who's three, and I would never in my wildest dreams expect her to approach me anything close to that. You know, like I would never want that for her. But yet we look at God and I I was brought up to believe that that's how God expects us to approach him. And when something shifts in your mind, like for me, you talked about uh, Manning's book. For me, it was Rob Bell's book, Love Wins. Mm, That's a good one too. (laughs) Destroyed me. Cause I I read that book and I've told this story in the podcast before, but it was such a defining moment for me because like I'd read all of Rob's books up to that point and I was in youth ministry too. So the NUMA videos were big, like mm-hmm. everybody loved those things. And so the, the book came out and I went to the local uh, Christian bookstore to get it. And I went up to the guy, I'm like, I don't see the new Rob Bell book. Like it's a sold out. He's like, Oh, we're not carrying that book here. <laughs> I was like, why? And he's like, well, have you, have you, have you heard about it? I'm like, I've heard about it, but I haven't read it yet. He's like, well, we took all of his books off the shelf. I'm like, Good Lord. I'm like, well, I'm going to Barnes and Noble to get this thing. Cause this is gonna be pretty wild. You know? So I got in my car and I went to Barnes and Noble and I went and I got the book and I read like three quarters of it that night. And it just totally, I was like, I can't believe there's another way to think about God. Yeah. Like, and, and what really rocked my world is that I'm like, how have I been involved in the church since I was a kid? I've gone through fourth through 12th grade at a private Christian school you know, I'm in Bible college. Like, how have I not known this? How has this been kept yep. a secret from me? Yep. And once I allowed myself to open myself up to maybe this could be true, everything changed. And oh, the yeah. way that I talked to God, like that little boy to his father is just no, <laughs> it's no more. His book, What is the Bible? Did oh, yeah. the very same thing for me with the Bible. I hadn't read my Bible in like three years before yeah. that book came out. I had to put it, it was just too toxic and twisted. And yep. I was like, I need a break from this book. Yep. And man, when What is the Bible came out and I read it and it came out, you know, around the same time that Rachel Held Evans Inspired came out, mm. both of those nudged me back to the story beneath the story. Let's see what else is going on here. Think about the real people. Put like, put yourself in their place. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -mm -mm. That could be be another conversation we can have is about the Bible because I'd like to hear more of your thoughts around around that topic. (laughs) Just that move from fear to love, looking for the arc of love through the whole, from Genesis to Revelation. If you just look at love, it changes everything. Yeah. Oh, it really does. Well, man, this has been a lot of fun, uh, but we are just about out of time. Um, Before I let you, yeah, no, right. Before I let you (laughs) go though, (laughs) where, where can people find you online if they want to connect with you? Yeah. So the best place to go is catchingyourbreath.com. Okay. It's the name of the book. It's the name of my podcast. Uh, you can sign up for my free courses there. You can connect with me on social media from there. You can find out about my coaching. It's all there at catchingyourbreath.com. Hmm. And uh, one last word for our listeners, uh, for the person who is caught in that chaos mode, uh, what are your parting words for them as the ex, ex-pastor, Pastor Austin? <laughs> <laughs> Pastor Austin. Oh man. Uh, my parting words are this. Ask for help. Yeah. Don't suffer in silence. Mm. 
whether you call the suicide prevention lifeline or you call whoever that trusted like ride or die homie is for you, whatever that person or organization is that makes you feel safe and accepted, Mm. um, reach out to them. Maybe it's the LGBTQ community center in your town. Mm. Um, Maybe it's the mental health clinic. Maybe it's your pastor. Um, (laughs) Whatever that is that makes you feel safe and like you belong and like you're good enough, reach out to them and tell the truth. Mm. Like that's, it all starts with going, I'm not okay and I need help. Mm. If you can just start there, there are people who can help you get okay. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) That's where you start. Good. Bring it out of the darkness, right? Yep, that's it. That's it. That's it. Well, man, I'll put all your links to all your stuff in the show notes, and uh, we're going to do this again soon. Thank you, friend. This was so much fun. I sure appreciate it. Thanks, man. Me too. Bye-bye.
Church, let that be us.